we've eliminated the portions of sunlight and essentially the amount of sunlight we're getting during the day, and we've moved it into the night, and it's essentially affecting all life forms. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome back to the Regenerative Health Podcast. In this episode, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Scott Zimmerman. Now, Scott is an optics engineer and light researcher who has basically been studying the effect of infrared or non-visible light on the human body. He has made some fascinating and quite unexpected discoveries uh, about the way that our bodies use this infrared light and how this affects the creation and the manufacturing of melatonin, uh, particularly where exactly these sources of melatonin uh, are being made. And what he's discovered, I think, what you'll hear in the interview is is fascinating. This is sometimes a uh, quite a complex interview, and but it is incredibly interesting, and it goes very well with my Jack Crew series. So for those willing to and interested in delving very deep down the rabbit hole, then this one's for you. If you're enjoying this podcast, um, share it with someone who might find it interesting. That would very much help. So thank you and enjoy. So let's get started with a bit of background on yourself and how an engineer comes to be addressing such fundamental questions about uh, light and human biology? Well, I'm. my background is I've spent 40 years in optical design for displays and lighting. Um, I have 85 issued patents um, in the area. And uh, a few years back, I started looking at lighting. I was trying to develop some, I got very interested in some work by Dr. Hamlin and others on red light therapy and photobiomodulation. And one of the things I noticed is, is that uh, a lot of the levels that they were using and showing biological effects were levels that we used to get, at least in the near infrared, uh, as far as milliwatts per centimeter squared, uh, in, when we had a well-lit incandescent room. Most people aren't aware about, but... Uh, both sunlight and incandescence have the major, majority of the photons that they emit are in the near infrared. And so I got, got looking at it and I came to the conclusion that I started trying to model, you know, what is all this stuff doing in the body? Because I do quite a bit of optical modeling. And uh, I was lucky I ended up talking to Professor Ritter uh, down and He's an expert in melatonin, and we kind of started to collaborate and have a series of papers with each other. But what I found was is that, um, you know, people think they understand light from the standpoint of we can see. Most of us are lucky enough to see. And that makes us kind of an expert in light, but it's only the visible light, and that represents only about 10% of the solar spectrum. And what you start looking at the, the problem from an optics standpoint, you know, there's very little data that it, and very little work that had been going into how light actually interacts with the body. So as an optical engineer, you know, I started modeling various things. And we started previously to this, there really, we didn't understand how light propagates in the body. And in particular, in the near infrared, uh, it can go several inches into the body, but more importantly, 
what you start to see is is that the body has all these different ways that it goes to great extent, great uh, uh, lengths to actually uh, collect and localize light in very specific t- tissues. You know, people think, oh, retina. Well, it turns out that for the eye, the majority of the photons that hit the retina don't go through the pupil. They actually go through your eyelid and through your sclera. And um, the, uh, the humor, the, the vitreous humor in, in the eye actually has a broader transmission window in the near infrared than it does in the visible. And you start asking, once you start doing that, you find that, uh, oh, okay, so light actually propagates through the skull and goes into the cerebral spinal fluid and is light trapped, light guided down into the fissures of the brain. Why? You know, is it just happenstance or no real reason? And the more you look, you, you see all these amazing ways in which the body actually takes advantage of sunlight. And uh, Professor Fosbury over uh, in England um, has a, a series of pictures that uh, I think I just put up on LinkedIn, some of them, but uh, where he shows, you know, how in the near infrared light propagates deep into the body, localizes in the blood vessels. And you have to, once you start looking at the optics of the body, you start to ask yourself, why? You know, what's, you know, is it just for no reason? And that's when I started working with Professor Ritter and, and he started showing how, you know, he's been for 40 years, he's been a proponent that melatonin is being generated in mitochondria. And so we have a series of papers around that and kind of show that if that's true, which it appears to be true based on our latest work, then, you know, sunlight is doing some pretty amazing things to our hormone levels as well. You know, most people can understand sleep disruption and things like that, but just the process of walking outside, optically, the body is localizing that near infrared in particular in various places in the body so that it's always guaranteed that you're never exposed to visible light or UV light without that excess of near infrared. And so that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, so as an optical engineer, I approached it that I like to quantify stuff. And so our original work started out with, okay, we'll model the optics where the photons are going in the body. And then we combined, uh, electron spin resonance data to then convert that into a three-dimensional profile of free radical generation in the body. And then if you know something about the free radicals, then you basically get to the point of saying, well, what's the response, which is antioxidant. And so you start to see these, like I say, these amazing ability of the body to take advantage of our surroundings. And uh, that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, and, you know, like, I guess, long way around answering question, but. No, that, that's fantastic, uh, Scott. And, I'm always very, very interested in talking to engineers who have branched into biology and into medicine and health sciences because the rigor that you apply to to our field as as doctors um, is incredible and it's a very, very unique and, and fresh perspective. We will definitely talk about um, melatonin maybe later in the in this discussion, and yeah, as you mentioned, the fascinating implications of of this this 
this uh, compound and, and what it's, it's doing in the body. And look, a lot of my listeners will will know of melatonin is you know what they buy in the the chemist uh, after that after they've had a long flight um, to reset their their kind of their jet lag. But there there is so much to melatonin that that I really want to dig in with you. Before before we even go there, I'd I'd really like to take it back to a very, very basic level. And you know, forgive me for 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 really simplifying or, or getting you to explain things really simply, because a lot of my audience uh this is the first kind of introduction or that we're just getting started in terms of understanding how how what light is and how that is affecting um, the hu- human body. So, so you mentioned um, we've mentioned visible light, we've mentioned non-visible light, and um, we've mentioned wavelengths, and we've mentioned photons. Um, for for the complete layperson, um, just just describe to us w- what is a photon and and how what, how does that relate to um, the different types of light that we we uh, that exist. Okay, um, I'm not very good at this, but uh, I will try. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, first you have to understand that sunlight is a it has a very broad spectrum. You know, when we walk outside, it it goes everywhere from uh, UV into far infrared, and that's a very large. We call that the spectrum, and kind of like the rainbow. Uh, that people see, there are different wavelengths. So, you know, if you're dealing with blue, it's 400 nanometers. If you're dealing with red, it's 650 nanometers or something like that. But sunlight runs from 280 nanometers, at least on the ground here in in, in, in Austin, wherever you're at, Um, 280 nanometers out to beyond 3,000, 4,000 nanometers. And, but the eye only sees a very narrow portion of that. Okay. And so when, you know, you experience being out in the sunlight or in artificial lighting or whatever, your eye really is only typically exposed to somewhere between 400 nanometers, nanometer being the wavelength of the light and uh, 700 nanometers. So it represents what we can see is only about 10% of what sunlight actually provides to us. And, that being said, um, you know, when we, what a, a photon basically is just a packet of energy. And so at each wavelength, there is an associated uh, amount of energy in that photon. At higher or shorter wavelengths, the energy per photon is much larger than the energy per photon in the longer wavelengths. Okay. And so you have to start, instead of thinking as as light as something continuous, you actually have to start thinking at it, what they call the quantum states. But bottom line is, is that the little parcels, they're just a whole bunch of little parcels. And we're talking about, you know, a typical uh, walk outside situation. You maybe have 10 to the 20th photons per second hitting every square centimeter of your body. So there's just so many of them that everybody... It's just, it's, you feels like a continuum. But when you start looking at that, all the different wavelengths and energy levels, then you can start counting them basically. And you can assign, hey, here's how many photons are coming here every second, how many photons are coming there every second. And it's a function of wavelength and a bunch of other stuff. But, you know, that's, you know, I guess I'm trying to say, you know, think about the rainbow, 
It has different wavelength, uh, wavelength range, but then magnify that way out to where you've got like 4,000 nanometers of bandwidth or spectral thing, uh, spectrum to deal with. And uh, so... Yeah, and and that's all that's all natural terrestrial uh, sol- radiation that's coming from the sun. And in some previous podcasts, we've talked about um, other sources of radiation, so-called non-native. And what what we mean by that is that sources of radiation that don't have an origin from the sun that we didn't evolve next to. So, so um, I guess I just make that distinction for the listener is that um, what what we're talking about, particularly at the moment, is. Um, the radiation that's coming from the sun, and and we're only seeing a, a small, um, I guess, parcel of that um, window yeah. of that of that energy that's that's hitting hitting the Earth. Um, the 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 next question, which is what you alluded to a little bit at the beginning of the conversation, is that these have have very very unique um, and different effects on our on our biology, depending on on the way the wavelength of light. Um, so so maybe. Can can you give us a bit of an an, an idea? Maybe I'll, I'll start, and if if we go to the bottom of that, the wavelength, the ultraviolet, um, at, at its core, ultraviolet um, C C radiation doesn't make it through the the atmosphere, but but ultraviolet B radiation is is how we make vitamin D, and it it basically photoisomerizes um, a D seventy hydrocholesterol in our skin um, to make vitamin D. I mean that that is. That's one of the biological effects of that particular wavelength. So, 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 to talk us through some of the other um, biological effects of of the different wavelengths, and the, particularly the ones that you've been researching. Well, um, to stay with UVB for just a sec, um, what we there's this really great paper by Yakimov where he actually used Raman, Raman microspectroscopy to actually determine the outer fifty. What's the composition of the outer fifty microns of the skin? And, you know, as you say, 285 is necessary to oxidize cholesterol, which is then used to make a whole bunch of different hormones in the body. The problem is, or what, what I think is optically amazing is, is that what the Yakimo showed was, is that the, that outer 50 microns in everybody, everybody, independent of their skin color, is when we're outside is actually photo oxidized photochemically oxidized. And, f- and what he showed was is that we've got this ultra thin layer. And the whole point is, is that it's photo bleaching, photochemically bleaching that outer part of the skin so that it's more efficient at allowing 285 to come into the bot into that region and and uh and break up cholesterol, which we need for vitamin D. So by eliminating not having the full, and it, what uh, the data shows is, or so some work shows is, is that uh, that outer um, or that process is uh, requires or uses takes advantage of hydrogen peroxide generation, which has been shown to require the UVA visible and the near infrared to do that efficiently. So when we don't get outside we're essentially reducing the efficiency. You know, when you're talking about trying to crack cholesterol, it's only about 8% efficient process in the best of days. It's really kind of hard to do. But the body seems to have developed this outer, that nobody seemed to know anything about, this outer uh, uh, microreactor that is optimized when we're outside to uh, more efficiently break down cholesterol or oxidize cholesterol. 
And so, you know, what you find is the more you look, every time what would happen is I'd do an optical model of something. And then I'd start looking at, well, wait a minute, what's that doing, you know? And and the more I look, then you start to look at the biological responses and you say, oh, my gosh, there's actually something going on. And, you know, that's, you know, what what's been driving a lot of the from an optic standpoint, it's been driving a lot of the work I've been doing is is to just simply understand what the body's already doing. And the thing that people have to realize is, is that in our modern lifestyle, we took away the near-infrared and the UV from our indoor environment. And when we did that, then all of a sudden the body doesn't have the ability to do this photochemical bleaching, doesn't have the ability to localize near-infrared in the retina or stimulate tear production or all these other things that, you know, it was the elimination. And and you got to put it in perspective from the standpoint, the elimination we've gone through is the largest reduction in solar exposure in human history, period. You know, we walk into a room. The windows are blocking near-infrared for low-E glass. They're blocking UV. Um, We sit in front of a display that has only visible light coming out of it. We have lighting that has only visible light. And we spend 93% of our time in that environment not being exposed. And, you know, what I guess what we've been, I've been kind of focused on trying to do is show that there's all these different things that the body's doing that nobody knew. I mean, until we did the model, nobody knew that you could, you know, that the near-infrared component would actually penetrate through the skull, get into the cerebral spinal fluid, and be light-guided down to the gray matter, which just happens to be on the outer portion of the of the brain. Um, and now we're starting to show that, you know, the variety of other um, things that I, I keep on saying, you know, pregnancy, you know, I had have uh, five kids, but I had a set of twins. And it was just amazing to watch the progression through the pregnancy. And when you look at that optically, it's just what happens is is in the early part of the pregnancy, the mother's skin blocks the UV and the the visible. Now understand that UV and visible, uh, the higher uh, for the blues and the greens, have enough energy to essentially come in and break a molecular bond. And so you don't really have the choice. The body doesn't know where that bond's going to be broken and forms a free radical. So, you know, the higher, the shorter wavelengths, the body is very discretionary on how it lets it come into the body. But when you're in the first part of a pregnancy, essentially the blues and the UV are all blocked by the mother's skin, but the near infrared passes through. And it turns out that the amniotic fluid surrounding the baby has a peak transmission at 850 nanometers in the near infrared. And that as the progression of the, as the pregnancy progresses, the the mother's skin gets taut, stretching, stretching, stretching uh, to the point that you're allowing more of the other wavelengths to come in. And it appears that that's an important part of the baby's eye development, you know, um, you start looking at uh, the other parts of the body. I mean, one of the things that I think is the the most amazing is is that, you know, if you look at uh, Fosbury's pictures that he's done in the at eight hundred and fifty nanometers in the other places, you see how 
the body essentially just lights up and it the the the, the near infrared bounces around inside your your hand or or whatever and uh, but it localizes that scattering optically allows it to actually get to uh, make sure that the blood vessels which are very important in the near infrared from the standpoint it actually we've been shown that it's been shown that that increases blood flow, oxygenation, cytochrome C, all these good benefits uh, are associated. And the body literally optically scatters it such that it gets distributed throughout all these little microvessels. And kind of like, you know, we've got a radiator system on the outside of us optically. And uh, so there's, there's all these different uh, mechanisms that nobody seemed to have ever looked at. And it's, when you look at them, you just you're just kind of like in awe. Incredible! It's absolutely incredible, Scott. And I, I like to talk to patients about this idea of of optimizing their food diet and their light diet. And what you described in terms of the change of people's light environment um, over the past fifty to hundred years. Um, to analogize, it's like if we uh, suddenly only ate food that was stripped of what eighty percent of its nutrients or you know, equivalent yeah. that, 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 that is the analogy for what people are doing when they're living in an indoor existence and they're depriving themselves of natural sunlight exposure is that, as you say, we've lost the non-visible light below, um, so ultraviolet, which is below visible, and we've lost the non-visible light, you know, above visible, above red. So as we, as you just previewed for us, they have, they have very, very critical and almost up till now unknown, um, effects on our biology, but by by becoming indoors and by exposing ourselves just to blue lit LED downlights and computers, we're we're essentially stripping down our light nutrients to a fraction of what what we evolved and what 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 we need. The um I, I really want to want you to expand upon on what 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 you've just talked about in terms of how the body is using near infrared, and um maybe before we delve really deep into it. Can you explain to us the, the difference between infrared and, and near infrared? Well, I mean, unfortunately, um, before we knew what was going on biologically, we assigned different uh, names to parts of the spectrum. And so the near infrared is typically uh, the portion that you start at red, deep red, you know, and you go out to Oh, anywhere from 1,200 to 2,000, depending on who you're talking to. And then from 2,000 on out, just what's called shortwave infrared, and then there's far infrared. But they're really just names that were assigned based on not understanding what was going on in the body. In the body, by the time you get, there's these what they call biological windows, where, you know, starting at around 630 nanometers, which is kind of an orange-red, out to about 1,200 to even beyond 2,000 um, is an area where the body has very low optical absorption and the scatter characteristics, how the light, you know, you take a, um, that's a good way to think about it. Um, basically, the, the way the photons are actually spreading in the body, in that region, there is a, most of the, the, the spread, when well, let's put it this way. If you have a white shirt on, okay, most of the light, because it's nice and white, is being reflected back, scattered back to you. 
It's not being absorbed. It's just being scattered back to you. In the body, in the near-infrared component and even into this uh, shortwave infrared component, there is an effect of, of mostly what they call forward scatter, which that allows you optically the photons to actually spread, but they don't come back at you. They don't bounce back as much. And those that particular, the absorption and the combination of that forward scatter is what actually allows the light to propagate. And I don't know if you've seen some of the Roger Seaholf's uh, videos on light as medicine. It's based on some of our work. Oh, wow. But yeah, he, yeah. 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 And, you know, he shows, uh, you know, some some really great um, photos where in the old days before everything, you know, medicine was in the older days of medicine, people would take a red light, shine it up here, and they'd actually look and see whether or not with the sinus was occluded going through the bone and all that. Anybody who's told ghost stories on Halloween and stuff, stuck a flashlight up in their <laughs> mouth or up their nose knows that, that the entire thing lights up. And But if you read the literature, because they really didn't bother to model it correctly, you know, people talk about, you know, near-infrared only having a penetration depth of a millimeter or something like that. And the problem is, is they're not actually looking at the the real the characteristics uh, of of the body properly, and not taking account of thing called that and do and a bunch of other stuff. But anyway, um, but what we're finding now is is that you know we can actually model that effect, and what you see is is that you have this propagation of this window of near infrared deep into the body, and such that in a child, and this is one of my big focuses as children is is that you know child a child is small that means that a high a penetration depth or the amount of the how far the near infrared will go into the body is uh, much higher so the higher number of cells are affected by children are checked affected in children compared to adults still a lot in adults but in children in particular right when they're in this growth mode and all this other stuff it used to be that you know, the kids would go out and build a tree fort or whatever outside, you know, now everything is, they go into a building with artificial lighting and have sports or something. So I think people don't really understand or realize how much we have changed this whole environment. And the near infrared in particular is, is extremely important. But as I said before, you know, it's not just, you know, Everybody wants to have a single item, you know, I don't eat avocados, I live longer type thing. But with this type of situation, it's all complementary. You know, you talk about, we want to have a lower diet, you are a better diet, or we want to, you know, um, get, uh, take this particular set of vitamins or whatever. They're all complementary from the standpoint of, they all have an effect on your, your cellular, how your body functions. But for whatever reason, I guess because people can see it, uh, light is never on the list of things that you want to, to care about. And um, that's what I guess I'm trying to get people to realize. Yeah. No, you brought so, up – go ahead. So, no, definitely. That's I think this is the message that I'm trying to, to uh, promulgate as well, which is that light is having an, an amazing effect on on biology. And if it's done wrong, i.e., if we eat a have a junk light diet, um, then we're going to get sick. 
um, and if we respect our, our the evolutionary biology of our needs for 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 an evolutionary appropriate light environment, then then we're going to thrive. I'll I'll include Roger Selholt's video in the show notes. That's an amazing, very informative video called "Light Is Medicine." Um, he's the he's the doctor from MedCram, so I'll I'll definitely include that. It's very very I- informative. The um so so let's expand upon what you were talking about um with the the concentration of near infrared photons. So so if I'm correct um, in terms of paraphrasing you, Scott, basically what you're saying is that the body has evolved uh, um, ways of taking this non-visible light, which is above the red spectrum, and absorbing it into the body and then transmitting it um, from the point that it's been absorbed throughout the organs. Um, and you mentioned uh, the brain, the, which are the sulci, which are the curves within the brain. Um, and you mentioned into the cerebral spinal fluid, which is the fluid that bathes um, the 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 spinal cord and is continuous with the fluid that the that bathes the brain. Is that correct? Yeah. I, well, I, I I'd be a little bit more specific from the standpoint. Most of the fo- what happens is is in the near infrared there is a low level of absorption, and as Fosbury puts it, you know, essentially it's a a low absorption matrix with a bunch of weak absorbers in it. So imagine you have like a a snowdrift. And you've got in there a bunch of little asphalt particles. You know, it the light you, when you're got, sitting there in your little igloo, the light propagates through there quite well. But the you still have these absorbers in there, which are the cells, the mitochondria, and all that. And so, all I'm saying is, is that a higher percentage of in the near infrared, a higher percentage of those cells or those absorbers are being uh, um, affected by the, are, are able to absorb the near infrared components um, because it's not absorbed as well, and so you get this this amazing effect where you get this propagation of photons deep into the body, and what happens is the body has over the years uh, developed some pretty amazing optical mechanisms to make sure that it goes to very specific places in the body. Like, as I say, the gray matter, you know, the fetus, the, you know, the blood vessels. And so just from an optic standpoint, it's really quite fascinating. The other thing you have to take into account is, is that most of the research that is done and, and arguments done to, for sunlight assume you're in direct sunlight. The most amazing thing about it is, is that if you, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, near infrared photography. No. Okay. So, what you can do is you can actually get your cell phone modified or a little camera modified, and the as I said, it the near infrared is between is a uh, larger wavelengths than red out to twelve hundred or a thousand nanometers or more. Okay. If you take pictures in that region, you'll see that. We're actually walking around in in your in the forest. All the trees and leaves are reflecting. They look like they have snow on them because they have extremely high reflectivity in the near infrared. So what happens is is that when sun comes down and hits your surroundings and reflects off of it, 
In the visible, it's absorbed. That's what gives us the ability to tell that the apple is red and the orange is orange and, you know, lemons are good and that snake is a bad idea. You know, that those are the things that we need to be able to survive. But in the near infrared, everything's white. Virtually everything is, is, in, is white from, from, that's living, grass, leaves, you know, reflecting clouds. And so we're actually walking around in this kind of like an integrating sphere. And the fact that we walk upright optically means that a very small, what they call a solid angle, hits your, hits your body when the sun's above you. But all surrounding you is reflections from that sunlight in the near infrared, absorbed, dropped down by to 80% of what it is in the, to make the leaves be green and all that. But in the near infrared, you're, we're walking around and the body is accepting all this from all different directions. And that's one of the things that's just, I find most fascinating about it. Our virtually, our upright position of walking increases the amount of near infrared we're exposed to. And, you know, that depends on even dirt has a higher reflectivity in the near infrared than visible. And so, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like, uh, did we start walking upright because uh, we had other reasons or do we walk upright because it gave us more near infrared? You can always make that argument. But, um, you Incredible. know, it, it, well, you know, it is, it is because, you know, it's something that people don't know anything about. And, um, you know, they feel it as heat, maybe. And, and I, if I could take just one quick second, I know it's a little bit off in the woods, but um, heat, one of my pet peeves is, is that everybody just says infrared, oh, that's heat. It is no more heat than visible light or UV light. A watt of UV, a watt of visible, a watt of near infrared, they're all got the, you know, they're made up of photons. And, you know, we tend to uh, try and lump all this near infrared and shortwave infrared into this thing of heat. And it is not heat. And the body is responding in, a, in absorbing and responding in a way that uh, is a very, you know, very interesting in a lot of ways to, to what's going on. Yes. So I guess the, the question that I have then is if we have evolved these biological characteristics so you've mentioned perhaps upright stance. You've mentioned um, an ability to concentrate near-infrared photons into the grooves of the brain. If we've evolved amniotic fluid with a specific, um, uh, would you does it refractive index to to pr- promulgate these near-infrared photons? The the question that I guess I'm interested in is why exactly that that is the case. And to me, it sounds like what uh what is happening is that the most sensitive tissues that perhaps have the most energy requirements are being uh are being facilitated to absorb this this type of light obviously the growing fetus obviously the gray gray matter which commands an insane amount of energy um consumption so 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 what are your ideas about why um these these biological features are as they are well i mean there's well, like right now, you know, why don't you have hair, hair on your forehead? You know, if you look at it optically, that hair, while it, you know, the fact that you have that and, and allows a, a, an, an ideal amount or 
an increased amount of near-infrared to penetrate and be in your frontal cortex. That's one thing. You have eyebrows that are in a certain location. You have your eyes recessed back in your sockets. You start to see from the standpoint of how the body is constructed that that it's it's trying to guarantee that you get a certain amount of this near-infrared into various, as you say, sensitive tissues. And part of the reason is, is that there's been work by Kessler and others where they show that, um, you know, once you get exposed to near-infrared, the blood vessels actually, there's an increase in oxygenation hemoglobin. There is a removal, uh, an increase in blood flow associated with uh, stimulating nitric oxide compounds in the blood vessels. So one could argue that, you know, the body made a choice eons ago that uh, it's going to use the near-infrared because it goes so deeply into the body to essentially stimulate waste removal, you know, increase the amount of, uh, you know, if you have increased blood flow, then you can argue that uh, the that various immune functions are enhanced. Um, you know, like I say, even to the point of determining how efficiently we generate vitamin D and all the sex, you know, the cholesterol that's being cracked up at 285 is being used by the body to do everything from vitamin D to sex hormones to, uh, you know, cortisol to a number of other different hormones. And that's kind of what we started out. I started out with mainly doing the optics and trying to understand where the photons were going. And then when we added, we were able then to add the electron spin data to get free radicals. And people have to realize that free radicals are not always bad. You know, free radicals actually drive life in a lot of ways. And so, but they have to be kept in check and in balance on a level that is uh, both globally or systemically, but also mainly locally, you know, and that's what, when you start looking at it optically, you're counting the number of photons that are hitting a cell, you know, type thing. And you look at it and you go, holy cow, that's generating all these free radicals in a second. How in the heck is the cell surviving? And, you know, quite honestly, some don't from the standpoint of, you know, every 20 days our skin cells shed off as a sacrificial layer because they're taking on all these free radicals that are being generated in life. And, you know, that's that's kind of, you start to see that there's kind of a, uh, the body doesn't get just to optimize around one item. It has to optimize multiple things. And trying to survive is getting the best combination. And, you know, I, I, I would, I would, I was listening to the conversation or a Netflix thing on the blue zones and uh, the discussions about them. And I was just sitting there as I felt like screaming at the, at the, at the, uh, the monitor. I said, okay, you talked about the diet. You talked about how they got along together. You talked about, you know, getting uh, exercise, but what you didn't talk about is, is they're getting a whole bunch of near infrared, you know, because if you look at the blue zones, the blue zones uh, are that we know of right now are between 37 degrees North and 10 degrees North on the, in the, in, in the, uh, uh, in, in latitude. And so, you know, kind of like a band through there, but I would argue that 
what really happens is, is that uh, those people that are living to be 100, they may have, there's a, I'm sure there's genetic, I'm sure there's other things, it's diet, I'm not arguing about that. But one of the things that's universal is they spend a lot of time outdoors with light clothing. And people yeah. have to understand that uh, Fosbury has a, this really great uh, set of pictures where he takes uh, a T-shirt, a regular shirt, and a, um, um, a, part, a cardigan. And he looks at it at 850 nanometers. Light transfer, uh, the near-infrared pants translates right through all that clothing layers. Now, is it reduced? Absolutely. But you don't have to go. You know, that's, that's why I keep on telling people, I always make the, the caveat. I'm not asking you to go out buck naked and stand outside in the sun, in the sun directly. You really want to be in the shade and you want to use, you know, clothing because UV and visible are blocked very strongly by, by clothing. Near infrared is not. So you can go out and you can play in the shade and and uh, have a hat on and do all this great stuff. It still is providing you with near infrared. The problem is, is, is that we've now developed an artificial environment that we spend most of our time in that has zero. It's not just a little less. It's zero. And, you know, the effect of that, I believe, is harmful. Now, that's going to get me in trouble. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, we, we've got enough data, I think now to say, you really do need to get out more. I don't know about down in Australia, but uh, for us, they did a study and there are people that are in nursing homes that get five minutes of sunlight a month, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's not it, right. It's nowhere near enough. And, and uh, I, I, I want to comment on this idea of of the, the necessity for sunlight in terms of, of our biology and very much in uh, in our society in Australia, the the sun is um, is very much demonized and that's there's obviously reasons for that and we obviously we have high um, incidence of melanoma and um, other kinds of non-melanoma skin cancers. But I really think the baby's been thrown out with with the bathwater and you know to the degree that you know you can't go outside without um you know being covered completely head to toe with sun sun including sun glasses and sunscreens there's a there was a campaign i don't know if it's still going called slip slop slap the 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 but the point that we we you've made um you know in this this first 40 minutes is that there is so much important um visible and non-visible light effects on our biology and as you say you can still go outside with a t-shirt on and get the benefits of of near infrared, but um, you know, some would argue that you you're not adequately or you're not stimulating something like proopiomelanocortin and POM C, and you're obviously not going to be making as much UV uh, uh, vitamin D if you if you're blocking uh, UVB and and maybe you're not making as much uh, nitric oxide if you're blocking UV, UVA. I guess my my answer to that would be simply titrate your exposure based on your Fitzpatrick skin type. If you're really pale. And you're from a, a northern latitude, then you obviously need less direct sunlight before you're burning or before you're in order to get your needs met. Um, and obviously, those those with darker skin um, have to have more more sunlight. The, the that that brings me to the question that I was that I really want to get your opinion on, which is melanin. And you know, I've talked to Dr. Cruz, and and he's talked about melanin, and basically as a 
black hole pigment and because it's so dark it, it will absorb all, all the wavelengths of visible and non-visible light and and he's presented a data or information that we actually use melanin cutaneously to uh charge separate water to generate free energy in the form of of, of electrons do you what do you know anything about melanin as it relates to to near-infrared light um i would uh Well, let me let me let me back up just a little bit. Um, can we can we? I, I will address your thing about melanin, but could I, could I address the issue of uh, you know sunscreens? Of course, in particular. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it's it's pretty much a, a, a one of the best examples, one of the best examples of where the optics really matter. Um, I did a paper way back when that uh, was blocked from publication that. Uh, basically showed that if you do the optical model, it the free radical generation uh, in the skin is half of it is associated with UV. The other half is associated with visible. And what people don't realize is, is that when you get a sunscreen, because of the... Uh, the bad the bad bad optics are bad optics um because uh, the body in order i guess what i'm trying to say is in order for the body to uh prevent some forms of skin cancer in particular basal cell carcinoma which has been on the rise for all these years even though we've been using sunscreen the what happens is optically is is that the uh, the visible portion and the UV and the blues, the violets and the greens localize in the basal cell region of the skin. So in order for you to use for sunscreen to be really effective, you actually need to absorb in the blues and the violets and the greens, which means you have to put on dark face. So there is what's what's literally going on is the while the sunscreen may help you with melanoma, it actually increases the time that you spend out there outside exposed to blue and greens because when you put a sunscreen, UV blocking sunscreen on, it literally uh, reduces the sunburn that you're going to get, the erythema. And so you'll spend more time outdoors thinking you're safe when in reality you're actually increasing your exposure to the blues and the violet and the violets, which are then localizing optically in the basal layer. So, yeah, my problem is, is that, you know, there was a company there in Australia that tried to sell some sunscreens that show, did try to uh, deal with the blues and the violets. But, uh, you know, we're basically have created this kind of environment uh, that giving false Yes, melanoma is terrible. Don't want to argue with it. Why don't you just wear a hat? You know, that's a, that's a little bit better way to do it. Now, when you go down to talking about cruises stuff, um, people tend to think about uh, that the melanin is just this dye. You know, you're black, you're white, you're whatever. Actually, melanin is produced as a little granule. And it is very specifically placed in, in various parts of the cells around the nucleus. Optically, that's really quite fascinating because it, because they can actually 
put a higher concentration on the outer portion of the nucleus so it blocks you know it blocks it optically it allows the rest of the energy to prop- propagate deep, deep in so one of the things about melanin is is that it's not continuous people think it is because when we look at somebody we see a dark skin or a light skin or whatever the melanin is actually dispersed very spatially and very carefully in the body and there's been people who have taken melanin and made solar cells out of them you know it's possible it, optically it is uh it's, it is interesting that for those who know about the dermis epidermis barrier it has a lot of modulation on it yeah uh, where it has all these different ripples and that type of stuff. Um, the melanin is actually put in optically. If I were to design a solar collector, I would put the little granules in a particular location in there that the body does, and it would enhance the effective ability of the melanin to absorb and to uh, do whatever it's doing. Do I know what it's doing? No, I don't know what it's doing. But optically, it is uh, being placed very ideally for it doing something uh, like dealing with water or whatever. So, yeah, well, I mean, it seems to me that it's not only protecting, as you mentioned, the the, the granules, so the, the melanocytes, which are the specific cells that make uh, melanin, sit uh, in that that layer, and they have projections. That, that I think they supply about 36 keratinocytes for each um, melanocyte. And they have these little um, granules of, of, of melanin that they basically, I believe, bleb off and then they use that to protect the, the, the keratinocytes. But what you're, what you're mentioning, Scott, is that the, the function of the melanin is to protect the DNA from ionizing radiation, from, from ultraviolet radiation um, to, to reduce the likelihood of double-stranded DNA breaks um, and, and then, you know, the formation of, of cancer. But what what you're saying is that it's quite possible that we're also using melanin to harvest energy um, and maybe... All, even- all I'm saying is, is that optically, if I were to design an optical or a, a solar collector, um, putting it in, we do this. I mean, we, we, we put these kind of features on solar cells to literally enhance their ability to... Uh, gener- be more efficient, and it just is is very curious that uh, that the body has, you know, your outer skin, and then this bar- boundary that is highly modulated. I have a picture in one of our papers uh, where it shows that uh, a solar cell with exactly the same modulation frequencies and all that, and how that enhances the ability to absorb, uh, you know, the near infrared in particular. Yeah, so. it's it's fascinating, and and Cruz says that you know he 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 is very commonly saying that you know the skin is the solar panel uh, for the Ferrari engine in in our head. So um, that that that's what and look, he, he, it's it's seeming like the lines of evidence are really stacking up in in favor of that idea. And I mean, that, and then the next question you have to ask is, well, why? You know, what? Why did we evolve hairlessness? Um, and is one of the reasons so that we could get that. Um, more of that solar radiation into our skin and then therefore harness it for energy purposes. Yeah. Well, the other thing that you have to to, to realize is, is that melanin, uh, while it absorbs strongly in the UV and the visible, it uh, tapers off quite radically in the near infrared. And if you actually, or probably one of the few people that have 
published and, and, and measured. But if you take someone who has a high level of melanin, you know, 30, 40%, and compare that to someone who has four or 5%, you know, redheaded, white skin, um, the, and you look at what happens in the near infrared, there's about a three to six X difference in the, um, uh, the absorption or the, the absorption that's going on in, in that, in, depending on skin type. But what happens is, is as you get out past about 1100 nanometers, still within the near infrared, we all end up looking the same. We all are dark skinned with white hair. And it's because melanin is dropping out, water is coming in as the main absorber. So what ends up happening is, is if you were to take a picture of somebody in this uh, shortwave, and you can see it in some of our papers, take a picture in the shortwave infrared, you know, we have this really, all of us have this really dark skin, white hair, our clothes are white because it doesn't have much water in it. But any material that has water is strongly absorbed. And um, so it, it changes once you start looking at these different things and, and, and realizing that we all are a little different, but we're all a whole lot of same, you know, then you start to, I think, understand. And, you know, it's, 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 it's difficult because uh, sometimes our politics or whatever get in the way of actually doing real science. <laughs> and that's, that's what is really quite, quite frustrating. And that's why I love the optics, because at the end of the day, it's a physical effect. You know, it's something you can show, measure, and all that. And uh, it really does illustrate that we're a lot closer to each other than what we, we sometimes tend to, to not pay attention or not, not think. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. But it also and, illustrates, you know, it also illustrates our differences from a standpoint. If I go down to you, like you or anybody in Australia that's white skin, you go out, you can get toasted pretty quickly. You know, someone, you know, with a darker, a higher melanin level, they're fine. You know, they they have almost no chance of getting melan melanoma. And it's all because they're adapted in the, they're taking advantage of the benefits of melanin. Yeah. Now I'm concerned is, is that when I do the numbers and look at it, my concern is, is that for, you know, like up, up in America where we've got a large percentage of our population at higher latitudes, they're not getting sufficient near infrared exposure, which makes them having, uh, you know, possibly being affected in ways that we don't really understand yet. Yeah. And that's what I'd like. That's what I'd like to, to really get more emphasis going on. You know, everybody wants to assign it to vitamin D, but it's, there's all this other stuff. And that's what we came to the point of, of talking about hormones and because the, the best antioxidant is, is melatonin. And uh, that's kind of what we're doing now is trying to, put together the different types of hormones and how they're affected by light. Amazing. And look, let's let's talk about melatonin. I want to tie a bow on the sunscreen point. Um, it really – what essentially we're doing when, you're, when we're applying that sunscreen is that we're really looking at a biological system in a very, very reductionist uh, point of view. And it really reminds me of blocking um, HMG-CoA reductase with, with statin medication in that we've got this incredibly complex system 
that is running on so many layers um, in so many fath- ways that we we haven't even fathomed yet. And then we're, we're looking at one lever and we're pulling one lever hoping for a first order effect, um, whether that's you know, uh, re- reducing serum cholesterol, uh, or, uh, you know, completely blocking UVB with sun sunlight and the, the amount of, uh, I guess, epistemic arrogance or ignorance about what the second and third, third and fourth order effects of, of, of messing with these biological systems is, is absolutely enormous. And you gave the, the example just before of, yeah, you can block UVB with sunscreen, but you, you, you're getting, you're still getting the visible, um, blue and violet in that, um, basal layer, um, which is responsible for oxidative stress. And as you mentioned, basal cell um, deaths or, or incidents going up. So, you know, the, the unintended consequences of blocking those those the UVB or using sunscreens is that you could paradoxically, if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, um, that you could therefore increase um, the, the the likelihood of getting something like a a basal cell um, carcinoma. And it's it's just it's so. Uh, I guess we. I feel like collectively we need a bit more humility um, before we. Uh, and reperception of the human body because it's not just a machine with levers that have you know uh, direct mechanistic outcome for one you know you pull it and you get an outcome. There's all these rippling effects because it is a complex system, and um, really I think the 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 conclusion for me is that um, taking a step back and honoring our evolutionary biology and having some humbleness and thinking well okay if if this is system is here it's probably here for a reason um and and rather than start fiddling it with it um by applying sunscreens um you know look let and we haven't even talked about things like oxybenzone and endocrine disrupting compounds yeah. that um you know there's a whole host of reasons other than just simply um the ones that we've talked about that that can that occur as unintended consequences of of playing with the system the the but this we're transitioning really nicely to what we I want to talk about next which is um uh oxidative stress and and uh melatonin and what you what you talked about is that um there is this idea that we've got um oxidative stress and free radicals happening all around the body and the amount of light that's hitting um, these cells and what you can observe on a cellular level is that the cell is generating a massive amount of oxidative stress just as a routine part of the operation in, in terms of living. And um, the way I think about it is like an engine, it's like making a whole heap of heat. But what um, the melatonin system seems to be, and, and obviously you're going to expand on this, is that it seems to be like a coolant system or a very, very, very um, adapted uh ability to deal with this oxidative stress at at a very very uh, local level and and it's funny because you know people in the nutrition diet space and even popular culture you know they think about superfoods or i'm going to eat this you know axi berry or i'm going to eat this you know a whole bunch of kale leaves and i'm going to get all these antioxidants uh and really when you understand melatonin uh it 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 really makes it all into a bit of um you know, a bit of a laugh compared to what melatonin is doing, both at a subcellular local level and you know systemically uh, in the systemic circulation. So, so with that as a bit of a background, why why don't you talk to us a bit about um, melatonin? Well, I think first and foremost, people need to realize that melatonin has this amazing ability to uh, it's a it's a, it's an extremely good antioxidant, and it's not just that it's an antioxidant. When it oxidizes the first time, it goes to AFMK, which is a great antioxidant. And then it goes down to AMK, which is a great antioxidant. So you get this cascading. And this is one of the things that 
Russ has been talking about for years is is that melatonin, everybody seems to assign it to sleep. You know, I'm going to make it so you sleep with circadian and all that. And I'm not discounting that. All I'm saying is, is that, and he's been saying, is, is that the real power, I mean, mel- bear in mind that melatonin has been around for a billion years. It's been used on single cell. It exists everywhere, basically. And it has this, not only the ability to generate uh, as an o- antioxidant, its metabolites to be an antioxidant, it has the ability to upregulate other antioxidants and and affect you know how they're behaving. Now, what's uh, the latest set of work that we've been doing is for so this has been debates been going on, you know, and uh, Russ has shown that you know the mitochondria is generating melatonin as well as the pineal gland. All mitochondria appear to be generating it. And so what you end up with is, is this kind of great debate going on and people taking melatonin for getting better sleep, when in reality, uh, I believe its biggest function is to actually uh, maintain homeostasis for free radical generation at the cellular level and at the systemic level. Now, you know, one analogy I'd make or, or, or comparison I'd make is, is that, you know, you can look at the body selected melatonin as the uh, what, to protect the brain during times of sleep. You know, why did it do that? Because of its antioxidant capability. So we now have this pineal gland that's generating in times of low cellular activity, a uh, large amount of melatonin that goes directly around the brain. A little bit of it spills over into the plasma to where you can actually measure it at night. And that really forms the basis of circadian, you know, theory. Um, so what we've been focused on is trying to understand, we, we now, we had the ability to say, okay, there's all these free radicals. Something's got to be responding. And melatonin, you know, Russ has been working on this thing showing that melatonin is generated in every mitochondria in every cell. And, but how do you measure it? Uh, because we can't measure hormone levels on a cellular level. So found this data done by Theron and uh, separately by Zoo, where they actually started measuring melatonin in sweat and in plasma on a scale uh, transiently with enough accuracy that you could actually see what's going on. And lo and behold, what do you find? You find that when we start doing stuff, melatonin levels increase on, you know, doesn't matter whether it's nine o'clock in the morning, doesn't matter. And so the, the latest papers are basically showing that, you know, when we do stuff, bear in mind that circadian is actually, they literally make sure that people is measured by making sure people are sedentary in the dark, you know, basically a bedridden condition. What our, the, the data we're showing is, is that during when we're doing something, doing anything in life, having sex, doing, uh, you know, exercise, going out and swimming in a cold lake, all these things cause a transient response in melatonin that, in my opinion, and based on the data, shows definitively that Russ was right. You know, all of our cells are generating melatonin. Most of the time, it's consumed locally to deal with energy production 
from, you know, from the, the ATP production because it's not a, totally efficient. But it also provides this ability to have this huge reservoir that was previously not, you know, it's talked about. But, you know, if you go through the numbers, you find that there's a lot of mitochondria and they don't have to me- generate very much melatonin in order to create this huge reservoir of melatonin that you don't really see until you actually look at some kind of a transient event. And just to give you some rough numbers, you know, typically in the plasma, you'll get 60 picograms per milliliter at night or maybe a little higher. During exercise, Theron and and Zoo and all those were able to show that melatonin levels at 9 o'clock in the morning go up to 200 picograms per milliliter. And stay there as long as you're doing exercise. So people's normal response to melatonin is, is that, okay, it helps me sleep. Well, we're saying, no, it's doing a whole lot more. And, you know, what? how are we getting it when you're doing this exercise? That's where the debate is at this point in time. You know, uh, we're arguing that it's in the mitochondria. And, uh, you know, so, you know, melatonin, what it does and how it operates is changing, I guess is what I'd say. You know, people have assigned it a certain thing. And it also shows when you start looking at the transient response that while you can take a supplement and I, you know, don't discourage anybody to take melatonin. It's pretty safe to do, I suppose. But um, but the body has this ability to clear it fairly quickly with the liver and and so you you have to take into account these changes as a function of time. I sorry if that's a little bit confusing, but you know that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah, no, it's fascinating, and I uh, I'll make the distinction for the listener that um, what we're talking about is that there's two separate uh, ways or two separate um, you know pools maybe even of of melatonin, and there's the 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 pool of melatonin that is made um, by the pineal gland, uh, and that's made uh, in response to the absence of, of blue light. So um, if we quit, do a quick detour into circadian biology for people who are listening, um, when when the eye, when the retinal ganglion cells um, sense blue light through the melanopsin receptor at I believe is about 480 um, nanometers, then that is the, the the peak absorption for melanopsin. They get triggered, and then your brain switches off production of melatonin from the pineal gland. Um, that is why being exposed to blue light um, after sunset is going to be so harmful to sleep quality um, in general and your circadian rhythm is because you're switch, simply switching off your body's ability to make a melatonin. But but what your what Scott is saying and and the work that he his and he and his team have done is that. Um, that the melatonin is being made in every cell, in every mitochondria locally, uh, not only um, all the time, but but particularly, uh, uh, I believe, on exposure to to near infrared uh, light. Is that is that correct? Well, it's not just near infrared light. It's exercise. It's mm-hmm. doing things. You know, the body. I mean, when you start modeling how many ref- uh, free radicals are being generated in each cell you're struck by the fact that something's got to be responding. Mm-hmm. And what this new, what we've been able to show now is, is that when you start doing exercise, you have, you have a ton of mitochondria in your muscles. That muscle, those are generating 
have to generate a lot of reactive or free radicals. And through that, there appear, what the data shows is, is that if you actually measure melatonin levels during the exercise event, you will actually see this huge increase in melatonin in the blood that previously, to my knowledge, was basically not even known. known. I mean, but, uh, and it gets back to this issue that, you know, how we measure things and in, it has a big effect on our understanding. And it's only with, uh, like I say, very careful high-frequency sampling that you can actually see this. Because what happens is the body always tries to go back to homostasis and pulls it back down. So what you see during an exercise event like Theron did or Zoo did, that the um, melatonin levels rapidly ramp up to a, a level, plateau. And what he was doing was he was actually measuring melatonin in the blood during exercise for a four-hour session on a stair stepper long exercise. It literally moved the entire baseline of the melatonin in the blood up. And then immediately, once you quit doing the exercise, within a less than an hour, you were back down to baseline. And now the same thing has happened with Gao's work, where they're using um, a wireless um, uh, bio, or cortisol sensors. And we're finding that during exercise, you know, you have this spike in cortisol. All this is, is not saying that circadian is not right. It's saying that on top of circadian is this other effect that is being done by the body. And it just is, it's using melatonin. And it's not just melatonin and cortisol. You know, you, anybody can go and uh, run out and uh, do something and you can you know, oh, I get feel like I got a testosterone. So, you know, it's always all these are affecting our hormones on a transient basis. And that's the part that's kind of been missed in the whole thing is, is that, you know, the act of living literally is generating changes in the body's basic chemistry. And what we're finding is, is that that level of change is much larger even than some of the circadian effects. Yeah. And why you have to start thinking about, okay, you know, when do I exercise? When do I eat? When do I, you know, because they all affect your cortisol and hormone and these hormone levels in, in, in real time. And I think that's the part that people have kind of missed is, is that, that the body is doing a whole bunch of stuff that we haven't included in our, as you say, our intelligence level. Yeah, and, and look, two points to that. One, it makes sense to me that the mitochondria will be making melatonin if this is a 2 billion-year-old compound that is highly evolutionarily conserved across, you know, um, uh, prokaryotes as well as all the way up to you know mammals. Uh, it's if we're if they're generating uh, reactive oxygen species at a single cellular level, then they needed melatonin to dampen oxidative oxidative stress in their single cells. Well, to me, it makes sense that 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 effect is or that site of production is going to be conserved um, if we know that mitochondria were once primitive. Um, single cellular organisms. That's the theory of endosymbiosis. That's how we know that that uh, or we believe that that 
um, that Complex Life evolved was when we got efficiency gains by bringing energy production in-house in the form of a, 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 of mitochondria. So that's intuitive to me, um, Scott, that, that that would be the site of, of their generation. Um, and the other point that, that I want to make is that if we're make, if we're generating all these reactive oxygen species, as you say, just as a, a function of living, then to do exercise, to eat all these things that might um, uh, add an additional oxidative stress, well, we should do that during de- daylight hours. We should do that during uh, under exposure to near infrared from the sun to help us produce even more melatonin to dampen down the oxidative stress. I mean, uh, that seems intuitive yeah. to me. Yeah, I think it is, and. You know, it's just unfortunate that people can't see what's going on in the near infrared. You know, I get a little glimpse of it because of, you know, I'm doing models. But uh, it's just literally amazing how the body is doing what it's doing to protect itself. And, you know, people I don't think I didn't have appreciation for how many things the body is having to deal with at any given one point in time. and that especially when you start measuring or calculating how many free radicals are be generated in a cell and the distribution of that, you know, you walk out, you go get a sunburn. You can see spatially that that little strap across there is good, not sunburned, and the other is, you know. So things are happening both systemically but also more at a local level, and they have to be responding. You know, those cells have got to – by the time the the signal comes back that hey I've got I've got too much uh, sun on this particular area you know send something to help me you know it's too late it had it had to be we have to have both the local and the systemic but what we've been measuring all along has been a systemic long range measurement once we start measuring it on a scale that's more appropriate then and in a way during some of these events, you know, it's not saying that circadian's wrong. It's not arguing that at all. It's saying that there's this other component that we have underestimated. And, you know, I'll go back to the sunburn just from the standpoint of the, um, you know, I got into trouble. I didn't get in trouble, but I, I, I thought it was really interesting. They were talking about trying to stop sunburn. And I said, but you can look at it the other way and say that sunburn is actually a warning signal that you need to get out of the sun. Now you've prevented the ability for the body to tell you you've been in the sun by blocking the UV portion, but you allowed it to, so people stay out longer associated with the blues and the violets and thinking that they're fine. So, I mean, as you say, there's all these different things going on in the body that uh, we're not paying attention to or we're essentially defeating or, you know, preventing them from doing what uh, helps us survive. And uh, yeah, to me, yeah, go go ahead. No, I was just, I was just going to say that, you know, I think we're at the point now that we're starting to show that the, uh, our exposure to sunlight, it's all kind of coming together from the standpoint, exercise, diet, sunlight, all these things are playing together. The body's having to deal with them together, or at least it assumes. 
that's one of the things that people that I, I keep on trying to say is the body's functions that we've seen assume that we are exposed to sunlight, the entire spectrum of sunlight. When you all of a sudden narrow it down to just a very short amount and you spend all your time there, it, it, it has a negative effect on our health and not surprisingly, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, we, you know, we've obviously gone quite technical in this discussion, but really if you boil it down to, you know, doing what your ancestors would have done prior to the invention of the electricity grid, prior to, um, you know, organized civilization, you know, what would hunter gatherer tribes be doing? Will they be grounded outside, you know, all the time being constantly regulated and exposed to uh, sunlight of and all the the visible and non visible uh, wavelengths of light that we've we've just been talking about. And look, they don't they didn't need to know the specifics of mitochondrial reaction reactive oxygen species generation and how to dampen that with melatonin. They just they just lived their life. They hunted yeah. the bison. <laughs> they hunted bison. They made a fire. They you know they sang and they watched the stars and they you know they enjoyed their lives and. Um, you know, I think what you're doing is so important, Scott, because today's society has become so cerebral and so, um, you know, science-based and, you know, there's a whole religion, which is, you know, scientism, I believe is, um, you know, it's it's kind of cropped yeah. up. People don't don't worship, uh, you know, religious deities. They, re- they worship science um, as, as an entity. Um, but essentially, by by the work that you're doing, you're really helping us to 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 move the the needle, the compass point, or our attention back towards what is essentially deeply ancestral practices, which is simply go outside and, and be outside um, and and do that do that sensibly. But before we finish, I, I, and I think maybe this would be a great um, segue into the final topic of discussion, which is. Um, what what is happening when people are spending ninety percent of their time indoors? And and we've really talked about it a little bit already, which is that they're not getting, uh, they're they're, they're getting zero, uh, non visible light. They're getting zero UV. They're getting zero near infrared or in, in infrared. And and what I likened to that earlier was like you're eating a diet that is you know de- de- deprived of ninety percent of your nutrients if you're you're not getting. Um, all this outside time. So, so talk to us about what are the characteristics of the light that most people are, are living under most of the time? Well, as I said, you know, when you walk in, you sit down on the couch and you watch TV, the TV is getting brighter and, and uh, uh, larger and, and we're spending more time in front of it. Our kids are spending more time in front of it. That contains only visible light. It only, it does not provide any near infrared does not provide any uv same thing is true of the lighting systems we've taken and shrunk the spectrum down to to just the visible portion uh, that was done based to save energy great idea good from that standpoint but it ignored there was zero research into what the effect of that was going to be and in fact i'd argue there was a lot of pushback where people before me were saying hey this is different and but they couldn't quantify it you know to go back to just to briefly go back to what you were talking about uh, you know uh, the humbling effect you know if it used to be back in the old days that uh, hospitals and all that were designed to actually push people out into the sunlight you know and and do that and that was not based on them understanding as you say melatonin free radicals that was based on 
simply statistics where they observed, you know, Florence Nightingale in particular observed, she was a statistician. She observed that people lived longer when they did certain things. And so if you look at the, like Ellis Island out hospital out here, all the uh, surgery was done under a conservatory window that they could open up. The, the windows were mostly open and they used radiant floor heating. They had, uh, you know, had water bodies around it to keep the humidity. So, you know, what we're try- talking about here is actually what it used to be. And then all of a sudden when we got antibiotics and that kind of stuff, we started moving everybody indoors, you know, and, and sealing off. Um, and, and actually, you know, during that time frame, the idea of using light as a therapy was quite prevalent. And when the drug company, certain parts of the drug companies decided that they would, uh, that they, uh, you know, antibiotics were the wave of the future, they literally shut down some of those practices and, and made it so that that was considered. So now what you're seeing is, I think, uh, this resurgence of red light therapy, near-infrared therapy, you know, people having this conversation and us measuring some of the stuff we're measuring, you know, is really just symptomatic of people having a solar deficiency. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's a lot of parts of the population that you can say go out in the sun. They're not going to do it, A, or B, they can't do it. And that's where I have my biggest angst because, you know, I, I think that, you know, while it's maybe not popular to say, I think we have created an artificial environment that is harmful and for and unnecessarily so. It's not hard to actually put back the near infrared. It's maybe more hard to put back in UV, but you don't need as much of it on a regular basis. But it's only when we start looking at trying to quantify, you know, this is the engineer in me, you start quantifying some of these effects that you start seeing the opportunity uh, associated with, uh, you know, putting back some of what we used to have, or at least providing people with a methodology where they can have minimum, try and encourage more kids to go outside in the afternoon. You know, you know, I don't want to, I don't want anybody to go say, Oh, we told you you had to go out and stand out there, you know, in direct sunlight. You know, that's not what we're talking about. The advantage is to be actually in nature in the shade, you know, because in that environment, you know, when you start looking at, you know, we talked about the different parts of the wavelengths. When you look at the different portions, when we're outside in direct sunlight, the, vi- the visible portion and the near-infrared portion from a watt standpoint are about the same with direct sunlight. The minute I walk into the shade, it goes up to three times the amount of near-infrared to visible ratio. The intensity level drops, but the ratio changes. And that's what we're trying to make everybody understand is, is that it's the ratio that is important because this protects you from this. And if you don't get enough of this, and we, what we did is we took it to zero for a lot of people, then the body has to find some other way to deal with this. And that ends up being higher oxidative stress. It ends up being you know, maybe some of the maladies that we see in modern society, um, you know, and it's not a, not solving everything at once. It's just a part of what you do. You know, 
You're better off eating a plant-based diet. You're better off doing it. Well, we don't all do that. But this is one thing that we could fix or provide a minimum level without, you know, some big issue. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and I want to make uh, three three separate comments. When you when you talked about um, you know, we how they removed the non visible light when they in the lighting industry without consulting anyone or without understanding the long-term effects it really reminds me of when um you know they they imposed the cholesterol you know that they went on the anti-cholesterol crusade um the 1977 mcgovern report uh basically um uh mandated that we should be replacing uh dietary saturated fats with polyunsaturated fats and and really this is an uncontrolled population-based uh experiment uh, there, there was no, um, there was no uh, kind of lead in time. There was just okay. We've got a hypothesis, or we've got a, um, you know, a, a, something that we want to do, and we're just going to do it. And the same thing sounds like with with a, the move towards these this visible only light is that there wasn't enough um, humbleness or uh, humility to think. Hang on, well, what what are going to be the downstream consequences of of cutting out um, what? something that's been there for for a very very long time so um i i I think there are a multiple population level kind of uncontrolled experiments that we're running in modern society um that especially in the past three years um that have you know unknown uh an unknowable uh uh unintended consequences and we're going to find out but i i I think it's going to be very very um incompatible with human health and i think a lot of people are going to continue to get um, sicker. The 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 second point I wanted to to make uh, is that um, what what we think is a good idea, and this is a kind of lean on point, is that we're going to save you know save energy by putting LED downlights in everyone's houses, um, and that's going to be a great thing to do. But um, again, it hasn't accounted for the fact that there was value, or that we need we have needs that um, uh, are now not being met, or active harm that's being done by exposing everyone to blue blue only only light and and when you mentioned earlier that that um the blue and violet gets concentrated in the basal um in that layer um does that in in my mind uh, i'm thinking about the incidences of um skin cancers and i believe um you know melanocytes do have an absorption peak around 480 does that does that imply a mechanism by which isolated blue light that everyone is being exposed to could increase um, melanoma um, cancer rates. Well, I, all I would say is, is that I, I, you know, they need to run real studies to do it. But all mm-hmm. I'm saying, optically, that is what is happening: is is that the majority of the photons that are going in in the blue and the violet are localizing in that basal layer. They um, and that you know, by preventing the body from telling you it's time to get out of the sun, people could spend more time, could be spending more time in the, in the, the part. And, you know, this is well known. Zostro did this study years ago. And it's really kind of what we use for some of our models where he showed, and he was working for a cosmetic company and he showed that uh, you can take a piece of skin, put it out, Cover, expose it to the UV, expose it for the to the near infrared or to the visible portion, and those two samples will have the same number of free radicals in them. So it's not like UV is the bad guy doing everything wrong. We actually need UV, but the visible is also contributing to 
the amount of free radicals in that particular region. And optically, that's where the majority of them are absorbed. So, but how, how um, far do, how far into the skin does visible like blue light penetrate? Because because we, we did we, yeah, I mean it, it it's a little bit of a functional wavelength. But if you look at uh, like uh, Eddie or anything, they, you can say that ninety nine percent of them fall within a millimeter into the into the skin uh, photons, and that's you know based on the absorption characteristics of skin at the, in the visible range. So, mm-hmm. you know, it just, like I say, we did a model and showed it kind of it, that there was a, a higher concentration in that basal layer and might be a, an issue. It might be a reason why that people with uh, light skin, men with light skin color, color still are getting, you know, increasing levels of uh, uh, basal cell carcinoma. You know, somebody's going to have to run the test to actually prove that and yeah. all that. Yeah. But, um, Great. Well, all, all right. Well, um, let's let's wrap this up. And I think that a good way to to kind of finish this conversation is basically what people can do, or what how you would like to see society change from an optics and a light point of view to offset, mitigate, reverse some of the problems that we've just talked about. When in you know re- in terms of reducing everyone's light diet to you know five percent of what ancestrally we would have been um, getting. So so what 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 can people do, and what could can companies and society do at large? Well, I think that you know as we've been talking about with uh, um, sunscreen, you know the lighting industry is is dealing with now a whole bunch of unintended consequences. You know, and it's not just you know, near infrared, what happened is, you know, we created a technology where people could efficient or could generate, efficiently generates visible light. Now, I believe that nobody at the time that they were doing that came to the conclusion that if everybody had the ability to put more light uh, with uh, out and costing a bunch of energy, they were going to put more lights out. So what's end up happening is not only have we eliminated the near infrared from the uh, visible daytime, we've replaced it with a whole bunch of light, especially in the blue region at night, which is leading to the artificial light at night. I'm a, I'm a dark sky advocate, basically. And so, but I think it's really along the same lines as, as I said, with the sunscreen. Nobody intended that we would, you know, yeah, they wanted to sell light bulbs, don't get me wrong, but nobody intended to have this huge explosion of light at night. I've got a neighbor down the way that she has the most, the brightest blue (laughs) thing that runs all night. I go up and say, turn that stupid thing off. But, you know, but that's what's happening is, is that light is where, where we've eliminated the portions of sunlight and essentially the amount of sunlight we're getting during the day and we've moved it into the night and it's essentially affecting all life forms. I don't know about you down there, but you know, I would always go out with my grandkids to, to watch the fireflies. Fireflies aren't around very much anymore around our neck of the woods. Now it could be a lot of reasons, but you know, I think that we need to take a step back, as you say, be a little bit humble and uh, understand that, what we're doing has a whole bunch of unintended consequences that nobody nobody wants the planet to die from 
you know, global warming and all this other stuff. We're all trying to do it. But at the same time, you can do it stupid, you know, and, uh, you know, that's that's what's the concerning part is, is that, you know, as an engineer, I'm looking at the numbers and I'm saying, wow, we really did change stuff a lot. And do we know what it's going to do? And, you know, that's that's kind of where I'm coming from in the whole thing. Yeah, no, and it, it definitely, and I, I, I agree with you uh, a lot, Scott. I think that we, we really need to walk back um, so, some of these changes that we made from a societal point of view um, in, in in the face of what is so much um, metabolic disease, um, cancer, you know, behavioral issues, and so many of them stem back to disruptions of our light. Of, a, of our naturally evolved light environment. And I just recorded a really great podcast with Sarah Pugh um, for those who want to delve a little bit deeper and Jalal Khan um, into the exact kind of pathologies and diseases that are kind of getting, that are, are linked to perturbations in our light environment. But but uh, from from a, a whole high, high level view, I think um, reducing the amount of, of LED um, blue lit downlights that are, that are in a house, I mean, Look, look, look in in um, here in Australia. There's massive tracts of of uh, housing developments that get put up. You know, within three months, they all look identical. They're all cookie cutter, uh, and you go inside them, and their harshest, starkest laboratory white light, um, you know, is emitted from all these downlights in the ceiling. And you know, people are turning them on um, because they just use their stock standard the lights that come with the house um, and not realizing what effect that is having um, on, on their biology. So um, that, that might be a good uh, point to kind of talk about what you're doing with your company in terms of trying to balance out the, the artificial light spectrum. Yeah. And, and, you know, our company, we're basically developed a light source that uh, it's, it's not very complicated, I believe in keeping it simple where we LEDs are very good at generating visible light. They do that really well um, with a high efficiency. They're terrible at generating near infrared. The old filament bulbs that everybody learned to hate uh, is very, is the most efficient method of generating near infrared. And when I talk about filament bulb, I'm not talking about a light bulb. I'm talking about the little grain of wheat ones that you used to have in your flashlight and all that. Well, it turns out that if you use the filament bulbs to um, generate the near-infrared, you drop the temperature of the filament, and the lifetime of an incandescent goes out to beyond that of an LED. Now, the LEDs, so what we do is we have a light source. It's really quite simple, where we have a combination of LEDs to generate visible and we had gener- and use the filaments to generate the infrared. And we do that in a way that mimics basically a shade condition where it's a three to one near infrared to visible as far as optical watts. So that's what we generate. Um, you know, uh, we make, it's just a little screw in light bulb runs off of 48 volts or 120 volt AC. Um, and the cute thing is, is that by doing that, it uh, basically, it gives us the ability to um, make improve the, or make it simpler for the control systems associated with lighting. So we can do a larger dimming range. We have a better uh, power factor and other other things. But you know, just in general, you know that that's what we're 
been putting out there and trying to sell uh, in the form of desk lamps and things like that. Because I believe that, you know, we don't have to relight everything. But as you say, this idea that you can put these high, bright blue ones sitting up in a can light and everybody turns on and you have this harshness that is inappropriate, you know, you need to, you need to be able to get to the point that you can have something that has some of the near infrared content in it to put by your workstation or to put with your children, you know, when they're reading a book, you know, it used to be that we'd sit around and, you know, either have a little campfire going or, or have, uh, you know, be reading under an incandescent or candlelight or whatever in the old days. And there was an advantage to that. It basically set you up for better sleep. I would argue that what we do as far as the near-infrared is just as much as important in your sleep patterns as, you know, people are doing. Because what's really happening, the the lighting industry has said, okay, we're going to shrink everything down from 400 to 700 nanometers. And in fact, they're really pushing more like 620. So it, it, that'll, that'll, we can make everybody think that's white. But now all of a sudden, we're having some problems with people sleeping. I don't remember having a lot of troubles sleeping when I was under incandescent lighting. I do have problems. People are having a lot of problems with this shrunken, you know, thing. So, and they've got a problem because if they add in the violet, add in the the reds that that make up, you know, gets closer towards what we want, the efficiency goes in the toilet. So, um, you know, they, they're kind of stuck. And, you know, what Wardlight does is let you have, still meet the DOE requirements for uh, energy efficiency, but it gives you the entire spectrum out to about 3,000 nanometers simply because the little filament bulbs that we're using are so efficient at generating the near infrared. So, yeah, there's some other electrical advantages. It sounds great. And uh, look, again, it reminds me of, look, the, uh, you know, the goal is to, um, you know, save energy and to prevent climate change. But the two biggest, uh, I guess, centralized top-down movements that are being pushed to achieve that end from a from an optical point of view uh, uh, and from a dietary point of view are massively harmful to human health. And that is simply using LEDs on the visible only, which is what we've just spent, you know, an hour and a half talking about. Um, and then also, you know, the, this whole idea of a plant-based diet, which is highly deficient in in essential nutrients. So it's, it's these rev- this perverse kind of um, bizarro world where in order to save the world from climate change, We've, we're all having to sit under profoundly alien light sources, eating a profoundly nutrient deficient, you know, monocropped uh, plant-based diet, um, and that's supposed to be kind of everything that we do to, you know, save the the planet from climate change, which is essentially making people incredibly unwell because our fundamental biological needs from a dietary and, and, and a light point of view aren't being met. So I, I really take my hat off to you, Scott, for for doing the work to to develop a product that um, is is going to help people kind of, I guess, fill those needs back in. And it sounds like an excellent um, tool. I guess it's all about tools because we can go out into the wilderness and live like 
um, you know, Oog the caveman um, and have a perfectly regulated <laughs> circadian rhythm and, you know, max out our melatonin synthesis all day, every day. But, you know, that's not really compatible with modern society. So I think, you know, using tools like what you're talking, what you're designing and selling um, is, is a great intermediate way because people could simply put a, a, a light on their desk, as you mentioned, and get some of that near infrared and, and not have the, the, the as destructive effect on their biology, their circadian rhythm, but their, their ability to make melatonin. So um, well, that's really and, exciting. And I, yeah, and I, I think that there's a, a good portion of it is people need to start getting educated and aware of what's going on. You know, you know most people, they, they had no idea. And, you know, rightfully so. We all have our lives to live. We have things going on. And sometimes the solution is not the perfect solution. Sometimes the solution is something on the in, in between. And mm-hmm. uh, that's just kind of what we're trying to focus on is to say, okay, you know, start start a process. Start a process. Because it's not just the lighting. You know, the architects are – there was a – a uh, discussion I had a while back with uh, one of the glass manufacturers for architectural glass. And he said, you know, Scott, uh, every time I was explaining the near infrared, and he said, you know, that kind of explains it. We've been doing this experiment with these hospitals, and the more we extend the, the reflected range or window out into the near infrared, the better the results get. There's studies all over the place that are simply having being near a window in a hospital is better for there's lots of ways we can start doing it but if nobody knows about it nobody does anything you know then they're going to go always go for the energy savings and i would argue that you know the that it's it only takes probably less than a one percent improvement in productivity or time in the uh, sickness the reduction in sickness to wipe out any energy savings that they are hoping to get. And quite honestly, we really haven't had that much in energy savings if you actually take into account the increased amount of areas that we're lighting. We used to not light. I grew up in Kansas. You could look out across the area and you could see one barn light for every house. Now it's like everything is lit. And, you know, it's 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 overwhelming you know, some of the measurements are showing that, you know, we're increasing the light at night by, you know, 10% every decade or something like that. And uh, it's, it's really part, part and parcel of this whole thing that people aren't aware that there's another thing going on that you ought to take into account. Yeah. And maybe in the future, people will view uh, you know, using a, a massive LED light at night as the equivalent of having a really inefficient diesel generator spew out, you know, smoke into the into the atmosphere. Because <laughs> that's what it yeah. is. That's, that's an analogy about the, you know, the externalized negative externality of running this these devices and this technology is that you're really polluting the commons by by putting your your really blue um you know light on in front of your neighbor's window and unless you know they have uh blackout blinds and wearing a sleep mask it's 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 very consequential the yeah. um the other the other point I, 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 one, one quick one one quick little thing is is that uh there's a guy named Bar- bartholomew uh, a lighting designer and his thing is is that uh, he's been trying to uh and i wrote a paper with him and we published it on uh uh the effect on the black community. 
And one of his uh, th- things that he talks about is, is that in New York City, the, where they were having so much crime, their solution was to take and put in uh, generators with, uh, with uh, high-intensity lights for the parks and the other areas to try and cut down crime. And I'm looking at it, and, I, and he's the same agrees, is that, I mean, in what world do we think it's a good idea to run a bunch of generators and have light on all night, you know, to try and make people safer, you know? And it, for some reason, we're in this topsy-turvy world where we, we come, come up with these kind of conclusions and don't take into account the effect it has. You know, it's not just physical, it's mental. You know, there are all kinds of issues that uh, improper lighting is having on our on our health. Oh, un- undoubtedly. I mean, I I see patients in my um in my clinic, and you know the the sickest ones from a mental health and psychiatric point of view invariably have an absolutely um completely deficient light environment, completely sunlight deficient. You know, their 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 vit- serum vitamin D is low, which is what I look at as a proxy of their sunlight exposure. Um, their circadian rhythm is completely um, tanked uh, and inverted. Um, you know, g- often they're going to sleep at, you know, 3, 4 a.m. because they're on the computer playing games until um, early hours of, of the morning. And uh, it's 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 very consequential. And as you said, Scott, people aren't really um, aware of it yet. But, I mean, this, that's the purpose of, of this discussion and other discussions. Um, on the and, – and, and the other point I just want to make about – uh, also about the light environment and and um, hospitals is that Cruz has made the point that if we put casement windows, so open up casement windows in hospitals, uh, that would be something incredibly simple that would be able to uh, expose patients to natural spectrum that that wouldn't be that that difficult. And I've I've worked in hospitals for for four years and. They're profoundly, um, pr- 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 profoundly uh, unhealthy in terms of the light environment that, that you're going to get in a hospital. Uh, and uh, the other interesting thing is quartz, which is obviously which is uh, able to uh, allow all forms of visible light and non-visible and UV as well, I believe. So maybe putting quartz on the the neonatal intensive care, the NICU uh, little little. Uh, cubicles for the the neonates the the premature um babies to allow the a bit of uv in as well that that's a cool idea too well you know with with my kids you know they have a little jaundice you put them up in the window well now you can't put them into the window because it's uv blocking and near infrared blocking so you you know they no longer recommend to do that and uh you know it it is it is i i believe the hospital i would argue based on the stuff we're done with cortisol that hospitals presently are designed to bring their patient in with the worst high elevated level of cortisol. It's always scary to go to the hospital for us non-doctors, you know, but the reality is, is that you walk into a hospital and rather than trying to reduce cortisol, cortisol, you know, is a very important hormone and all that, but it basically suppresses the immune system, you know, when it's at elevated levels. That's what it does to help you fight or flight. But, uh, you know, there everything that we do now in hospitals, I would argue, is making it more likely that that patient is an elevated level of cortisol rather than a lower, you know, more melatonin type base. And, you know, that's just two hormones. There's hundreds of hormones that we have no clue 
I, the only reason I was able to do the data we had is because we'd spent so much time on circadian where we had some measurements that actually were were fast uh, good enough to to use for this uh this, this set of papers and uh, so there's so much to learn as you say we need to be a very much more humble on what's going on and i believe that at some point in time you know why wouldn't you just have a nice a little atrium area that you bring people into that has natural sunlight coming in and you know kind of set them up to you know good music a little you know have a carrot. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm just saying that there's no reason that we can't use the body's defenses. There's this one thing I, I was looking at the uh, African-American population in Chicago or in general uh, had 40 times the death rate of the population in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, sub-Saharan Africa didn't have the vaccines we had, didn't have all this other stuff, you know, as far as healthcare. And yet there's this huge difference. And I would argue that in part it's associated with a more uh, exposure to sunlight in those areas. And the black population has is probably the leading indicator because of the way light actually, you know, our models show that it takes quite a bit more exposure for them to get the same stimulus that we get. And... So I think there's a lot to be learned, and um, I'm hoping that people will start uh, digging into it a little bit deeper on the research side, because really all we're doing is putting back what nature used to provide. I'm not trying to, you know, sell everybody they have to get more, you know, than, than what nature provided. And that's why we design our lights to do the three to one, and then you know, when you switch it into another mode, it's a dimmed down to where it's more like coals of an ant uh, from a fire. Yeah. Because, uh, Amazing. That's the, yeah. I mean, I think that's the two things of this discussion is, you know, let's have some collective uh, scientific and epistemic humility about um, how we're conceiving the natural biological systems. Um, and let's try and get back to nature because mother nature did it the best. We, we are sculpted by light and we're sculpted by mother nature and the natural light, light frequencies. So, if we can get outside as much as we can and 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 use the sun as as safely and as we've just talked about, um, then I think people are going to be able to prevent disease and 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 definitely heal, uh, which is not yeah. what the current um uh, setup is really uh, aligned to. So 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 Scott, thank you so much for uh for coming onto the podcast. Where can people find out more about your work? Where can they follow you online? And where can they buy some of your lights? Um, you can buy the lights from NairaLighting.com, N-I-R-A Lighting.com. We're a small little company, so we're just trying to start building up inventory to get it. So please be patient. Um, you ship to Australia? You know, uh, yeah, we can ship to Australia. You know, we'll send you the shipping bill, but uh, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> the thing. But, uh, you know, for Australia and the UK, because we're – your voltage differences we just use provide you with a plug-in module so it's a wall wart type thing and you can we got a couple versions you can do one where we provide you with the lamp and the other where you can modify your existing lamp to to uh to do that um and then you know uh the if you want to look at any of my work um russ was extremely patient 
took an optical engineer and told him how to actually write a medical paper with uh, all the references. So we've done that. Uh, there's three or four of those out there that I'd suggest, uh, you know, Roger talks about some of those papers. Um, it's really, you know, mainly associated with melatonin and the optics of the body. And uh, now it's also throwing in some of it. But most of the, the work I've done is I posted on, on LinkedIn. So if anybody wants to friend me on LinkedIn, they can go back and look at the papers. You know, it's a stack about that thick because I'm long-winded. So, um, you know, they may have to dig through a few of them. But I think that, uh, you know, like I say, if they would like to – and and it's a, it's interesting to watch because you know while I understand the reasons behind peer reviewed papers and we do that sometimes LinkedIn is a much more open conversation and a broader conversation um, with uh, more diversity as you say you know I really believe that you know everybody's got a place at the table the architects the the, uh, you know, the th- phototherapy people, the, all this kind of stuff, because we're really just trying to create an environment where people can live the optimum life. So That's it. And that's my goal um, to help people live their, their optimal, most most thriving life. And yes, I agree with you. There's there's quite a lot of uh, drawbacks or or problems with with the with the peer review process. Um, it's obviously it, it can be great, but it can also prevent um, inhibit the free flow of of ideas, um, and especially when financial interests get involved. But uh, look, uh, Scott, thank you so much. I will include all those links to your papers and and social media. Uh, and and uh, uh, online store in in the show notes, and so people can can in, engage and get in touch with you. So uh, yeah, thanks again for your time, and uh, have a great night. You too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Regenerative Health Podcast. I hope this episode helped you better understand some aspect of improving your lifestyle for optimal health. If you enjoyed this episode, then share it out with friends and family. Leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts also helps spread the message. Thank you and see you next time.